Well, welcome, church. Oh, come on. You can do better than that. Let's go here. We're going to fix this real fast. Welcome, church. All right. Just uh, so he can fix this mic, I want you to repeat after me, and I want you to repeat loud and proud. August. August. Okay, I only heard this half the room. Come on. August. August. 23rd. Now, that's not my birthday. I know what you're thinking. It's Doug's birthday, and I need to get him something. No, that was April. You missed it. Repent. But what August 23rd is, that is the day we are shooting to get back at Columbia Elementary, and so we can be back together. Yes. Now, as we leave tonight, or even those that are watching, don't send me emails because we don't have all the details worked out yet. I have a meeting tomorrow night with our small group leaders. We're going to talk about this, and then we're going to roll out a plan next week via video on our e-blast as well as Facebook, letting you know exactly the plan to get back into the building, exactly what we can and cannot do, and the safety measures that we're going to be taking. So we are so excited about that. Now tonight I want to start with a survey, and one that you're probably not going to want to participate in, but I would like for you to be honest, all right? Don't don't raise anybody else's hand, just it kind of comes down to you. And here's the survey. How many of us here, and if you're home and you're watching this, you know, go ahead and raise your hand too, maybe nobody's watching you, but how many of us would say that if you drive you are directionally challenged. Anybody directionally challenged? Okay, okay. We're like nervous about that. Raise them high and proud. I mean, yeah, raise them high and proud. Yeah. See, uh, there's many of us that are directionally challenged. There's quite possibly, now that I see how few raise their hand, that you are directionally challenged, but you're just not willing to admit it. But in my household, there's one person that's extremely directionally challenged, and it's not me. It's not me. I'm not directionally challenged. In fact, uh, I may have told this story before, but one of the first major disagreements that Sonia and I had was actually on our honeymoon. We, we flew to Orlando, Florida. Her mom had won a trip through a bridal shower, and so we were going to the greatest place to go outside of heaven. We were going to Disney World. And so we get here, and we had this rental car, and I realized something as we start going. I'm driving, and I'm extraordinarily patient, right? And so, and Sonia's over here, and she's got the road atlas out, and she doesn't know how to read the road atlas. Now, I understand if you're under 30, you're probably saying, you mean there was a season when Google Apps did not exist? The answer is yes. In fact, when you said Google in 1994, you were talking about the largest number that was known to man, 10 times with 100 zeros. So this whole idea of Google back then was a number. It was not a web browser. So there was nothing to give us directions but a road atlas. And Sonia struggled reading the road atlas and turning and going. And so we were only nine miles from our hotel, but it took us two and a half hours to eventually get there. And so that was one of our first difficulties. But as we drove around, one thing we discovered quickly is how easy it is to get lost in Orlando. Now, here's some things about being lost that we all know. First of all, nobody gets lost on purpose, do they? Nobody gets lost on purpose. And secondly, you don't ever really know when you got lost. There was, like, where was the point in this journey where we got lost? But the most important thing we know about getting lost is this, is that regardless of your intention, It is your direction that determines your destination. Regardless of your intention of where you want it to go, at the end of the day, the direction you're heading is going to lead to a destination. Why? Because direction always trumps intention. Now, I say that because I think that's true in our lives as well. If we want to kind of, as we look at this series, talk about how to not wreck our lives, if we want to live our lives in such a way as to not wreck our lives, it's important for us, especially in this moment, to take a look at the direction of 
our lives. So if you have your Bibles, Proverbs chapter 7 is where I want us to be, Proverbs chapter 7. Now, some of you are like, hey, Doug, I just don't know if I buy that. I, don't, I just don't know if I buy the idea that direction determines destination, not my intention. Well, let me give you an example. Let's just say, for, for example, that I told you that East Campus won a prize. And that prize was that, that we were all going to be able to go to New York City on a one-week vacation. And we would all be excited about that. Now, I know some of you are like, I don't want to go to New York. You got the coronavirus up there. Forget that. Act like it was a year ago, okay? If someone gave us a free trip, are we all going? Are we all on board with that? Yeah, we're all going because you get all the food and all that stuff. And so let's just say that was the case. We got a free trip. And all these charter buses pull up, three and four charter buses. And we left the service, and we all got on the charter bus. And we, as we were getting on the charter bus, Elijah was at one bus, I was at one, Patrick was at one, Christy was one. And we were handing you these I Love New York shirts. I mean, you just put those on. Because if you go to New York, you have to have an I Love New York shirt, right? So you put the shirt on, and then you put them all on. And then we get on the bus, and we're going to New York. Remember, we won a trip. And what do we do as we travel? We, we do the, the Christian thing. We pray for traveling mercies, right? And so we pray, and we pray, and we pray, and we pray. We got our shirts on. We say amen. Everybody claps. Here we go to New York. And then we get on Highway 419, Chuliota Road, and we take Chuliota Road all the way down to Highway 50, Colonial Road. And then we go east on Colonial Road all the way till it takes us to Interstate 95. And then once we get to 95, we make a decision, and that decision is to take I-95 south to Miami. Now here's the question. If we get on I-95 and go south to Miami, will we ever make it to New York? No. Now some of you are confused by that. You are the ones that are directionally challenged, right? No, we would not make it there. Now wait a minute, Doug. We, we got our shirts on. They say, I love New York. We prayed for traveling mercies. At the end of the day, regardless of our intention, it's our direction that determines our destination. Amen? And the same thing's true in our lives. And it's crucial as we talk about wisdom to take a look at the direction of our lives. Now, as we began this series, we started with talking about there's just two paths. There's the path of the wise, and then there's the path of the foolish. And then Elijah did a great job last week talking about the implications and the ripple effect of the choice that you make. If you, make, if you choose the path of the wife, here's the ripple effect that's going to have. If you choose the path of the foolish, here's the ripple effect that's going to have. But today what I want us to look at is actually the direction that our lives are going. So Proverbs chapter 7, let me begin reading in verse 1 through 5 because it gives us background. Solomon writes these words. My son, keep my words. Treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teachings as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablets of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress who are smooth, who has smooth words. In other words, this is the one of the first times that we see Solomon plead with somebody to embrace wisdom. Did you catch the words he said there? He said, keep it treasure it, keep my commands, write them on your heart. What's Solomon saying? Listen, I'm laying out all this wisdom for you, but here's my heart. Would you just embrace it? Would you keep it? Would you write it on your hearts? Would you meditate on it? Why? Because of what he says at the end here. He says to keep it from the forbidden woman. In other words, only the wisdom from God is the wisdom that's going to protect you when things get tough. Now, did you hear that? He's pleading with this person to embrace godly wisdom, 
not just for the sake of having wisdom, but so that that wisdom would be the very thing that would protect him when things got difficult, when things got tough. And we're going to see at the end of the passage, he does the same thing for us. And then Solomon does something very interesting here. If you study the book of Proverbs, you're going to find it out. It's quite unique. It's almost like Solomon walks away from the proverb concept of like a riddle, and he moves into more of a narrative concept. He almost like he's telling a parable to the rest of chapter 7. Look what he says next, because he talks about a guy that he comes across. Chapter 7, verse 6 says this, For at the window of my house, I have looked out through my lattice. And I've seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youth, a young man lacking sense. Now, I'm just going to, we're going to kind of walk through the passage, and I want you to see what Solomon sees. Solomon's standing on the balcony of his house, looking out this window, and just observing the streets. And he says he notices a couple things. One thing he notices is the simple. Now, you remember we talked a few weeks ago who the simple were. The simple are not people that are not intelligent. They are just people that are naive people that are gullible, people that are easily led astray. And he says here that as he looked at the simple, he noticed someone. He noticed among the simple some youths, a young man in particular that was lacking sense. And some of you, you know, what he's not saying here is that he saw a young man who had no common sense. Now, some of you that are parents would say, well, that may be in what he meant. That's not what he means. Actually, that word sense there should be translated judgment. And what Solomon's saying is, as I look across the streets of the town that I'm overlooking, and I'm looking among the people that are naive, that are gullible, that are easily led astray, there's one guy that stands out. There's a guy who lacks judgment. Now, why would he lack judgment? We lack judgment because he's young. Now, we all know this, that God's wisdom is true, it's eternal, we can tap into it. But we also know this, that with life, and life experience also comes wisdom. Amen? I mean, we've been through some stuff, haven't we? You've had to apply God's Word, and that wisdom that was on a page now has become part of your life. And so he's not dogging this guy. He's just noticing that this guy, this simple youth guy, he lacks judgment. Why? Because he hasn't been around that long, and he hasn't had those experiences. But look what happens in the story next. He goes on. He kind of began to tell us about this, this journey. He said this young man who lacked sense was passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. Now, if you notice there twice, he says, her. Who is the her that this young guy who lacks judgment is headed toward? Well, the best way to put it is, she was a woman of the night. You all know what I'm talking about when I say that, right? She was a woman of the night. She was a woman who lacked moral character, and conviction to the nth degree. That's who he was going to see. Now, if you're this guy, just, just track with me. If you're this guy, you know where you're going, don't you? You're this young guy who likes no, no real judge. You have no real judgment, no, real, no sense in that regard, and he's headed to her house. He's going not just down her street, but he's going down her road, he says. Now, if you're this guy, let's just be honest. If you're this guy, this young teenage guy headed to this woman there had to be a soundtrack playing in the back of his mind, right? And I'm sure that soundtrack was probably Born to be Wild, right? I mean, I think that's the music that was probably cranked up in his ears. But see, for Solomon, that wasn't it. See, for this young boy, he saw an event in his life. He's going to her house, born to be wild. But see, for Solomon, he didn't see an event. Listen, he saw a guy that was headed down a path. 
And see, for him, the soundtrack for Solomon wasn't born to be wild, probably. It was probably the theme song for Jaws, right? Da-da. Da-da. You agree with me on that, right? Why? Because Solomon knows where this thing is going, right? See, this kid saw an event. Solomon said, no, 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 no. It's a path he was headed down. Now look what happens next in the story. Look at me in verse 10. It says this, And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. In other words, this woman wasn't a prostitute, but yet she looked the part. She wasn't technically a woman of the night, but she sure looked like one. And she knew how to use her clothing, and she knew how to use her seduction to get his attention. And then it says she's wily of heart, meaning that she's cunning, she's seductive, and she has an agenda. Now, don't answer, but we all know what her agenda is. Amen? Are you with me to say amen? We know what her agenda was. Here's a guy that's going down the street to her house. He sees an event, born to be wild, is playing in the background of the music, and she comes out. Not a prostitute, but she's sure dressed like one, using her seductive clothing, her seductive behavior to entice him, to get his attention, and to give him the agenda she has. Listen, this woman is enticing this young man to participate in sin. And then look what happens next. I love this. Solomon tells us a little bit more about her. Verse 11, it says, She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner, she lies in wait. He says she's loud, meaning she's not bashful. She comes out, and she's loud, and she's open, and she lets the world know that she wants to experience something with this guy. There's nothing about her that's remorseful. There's nothing about her that's modest. She is just loud and proud. And it says she's wayward. That's interesting. We'll find this out a little bit later, but wayward means... She has no intention of keeping the vows that she made. Why do I say that? Because she was married. The Bible says she was a married woman. We'll find that out of here in just a minute. And so the fact that she was wayward means she had absolutely no intention of keeping the vows that she made to her husband. The vows that maybe we've made, maybe the, to honor, to love, to cherish, in the good times, the bad times, in sickness, and in health, and all those things. She had no intention of keeping those vows. She was wayward. And then he says here that she doesn't stay at home. She's one place the next, meaning this. She's obviously bored with the relationship with her husband, and so she's going anywhere she can to find satisfaction and to fulfill her desires. So here's this guy who lacks judgment, sees an event in his life, born to be wild, playing, and when he gets there, she comes out with seductive dress and with seductive attitude, and she entices him to participate. She does it because she's, and she's loud, she's wayward, she's not keeping her vows, and she, she's bored with her husband. And then we have one of the most pivotal moments in the text in the next two verses. Look at verse 13. Look what it says. And she seizes him, and what does she do? And kisses him. And with a bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. Now, that seems a little bit like we don't understand, but let me just tell you what she does. She comes out seductively. She entices him. She's loud. She's wayward. She's going all over the place trying to find people to meet her, her desires. And she comes to this guy, and what does she do? She lays a big fat one on him. She kisses him, and then she basically says this, I've been to the temple today. Now, what does that mean? It means this. 
She's basically telling this guy, I've gone to the temple, confessed my sins, and I've emptied my bucket of sins out. And guess what? My bucket of sin is empty, and I want to fill it up with you. Do you see that? I've been to the temple. She says, listen, I had to go offer my sacrifices, and today I've paid my vows. I went and I emptied my bucket of sin, and now that it's emptied, and I'm sort of in my mind right with God, I've come now and I want to fill that bucket up, and I want to fill that bucket up of sin with you. Now think about this. Here's a guy, a teenager probably, a young man, walking down the street, going to this event, born to be while I was playing in the background. She comes out and she entices him with her looks and with, with her words and, just, and she, she draws his attention. And then she basically says, I, I, I want you to help me fill up this bucket of sin all over again. Now, just pause for a moment. Do we know where this story is going? Come on, do you know where the story is going? If you're Solomon, are you concerned for this young man? Yeah, because what's Solomon's soundtrack? Is it born to be wild? No, it's Jaws, right? Now look what happens in the next couple of verses. Look at me in verse 15. He says this. So now, she says this. So now I've come out to meet you and to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. So here's the thing. Knowing that she enticed him, now she lets him know, I've been pursuing you. I've come after you. She said, I have, I have pursuing you eagerly. I've sought you eagerly, meaning I've sought you earnestly, intentionally. And she's made him feel special. She's made him feel loved. She makes him feel like he matters. She said, I've sought you, and I found you. So she entices him, but now she comes around and she pursues him. And then look what happens next, verse 16 through 20. It says this. She said, I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egypt, the Egyptian linen, I perfume my bed with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till the morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him, and a full moon will he come home. In other words, she's like, listen, not only have I enticed you, not only have I pursued you, but here she does, she invites him to a night of immorality. You know, it's like she says here, I made all the preparations. Look what she says. She says, I've got the Egyptian linens. I've got the myrrh. I've got the aloes. I've got the cinnamon. I have watched the Hallmark romantic movies. I know what to do. I prepared this for you. Now I'm inviting you to a night of immorality. And oh, by the way, by the way, if you're worried about getting caught by my husband, he's gone. He's not around. He took a bag full of money. In fact, the translation really in the Hebrew is a purse full of money. Took a purse full of money, and he's gone to the full moon. You are okay. Nobody's going to know. So she entices him. She pursues him. And now she invites him to a night of immorality. And look what she does last of all. Verse 21. It says, with much seductive speech, she what? Persuades him. And with her smooth talk... She compels him. So she's gone from enticing to pursuing to inviting to now she's persuading. Now, why would she need to persuade him? When you read the text, you've got to get into this because when you read the text, it's almost this idea that maybe there was a moment in this guy's heart and maybe a moment he said something was like, you know what, you're married, this probably shouldn't happen. But then she used her seductive words and then she compels him by persuading him that it's going to be okay. Okay. 
And he goes. And she says, listen, I want you to be with me tonight. And then listen, here's the biggest part of the passage. Look at me in verse 22. The first few words says this. All at once, he what? What does it say? Say it with me. He what? He follows her. He follows her. Now, I want you to notice something with me. I want you to understand the problem with what's going on. So you've got this lady, and she's enticed him. She's pursued him. She's invited him, and now she's persuaded him. Here's the problem with the story. This guy sees each one of these as an event. She's enticed me because she wants me to know that she's beautiful. She's pursued me because maybe she wants me to think that I matter to her. She's invited me because she knows I've got needs. She's got needs. Husband's not at home. And she's persuaded me that what we do is going to be okay. See, here's the problem. This guy just saw a series of events in his life. But that's not what Solomon saw. Solomon saw not events. He saw a path that he was headed down. A path that led him to follow her. That's what Solomon saw. See, this guy just saw a series of events. Just a series of events where she enticed him in one moment, she pursues him in one moment, she invites him in another moment, then she persuades him. These are just standalone events for him. But Solomon says, no, no, no. This is the path you're going down, bro. Where you ended up didn't come as a result of this. It started way back here. If you're with me on that, say amen. This is where it started. Now listen to the result that Solomon says of him following her and giving in to her temptation. Look what he says in verse 22 again. He says, all at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag or deer is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. Until a bird rushes into a snare and he does not know that it will cost him his life. He says, listen, you saw these as events in your life. And you thought the end result was going to be pleasure. You thought the end result was going to be satisfying your desires. But I'm telling you, these aren't events. This is a path you're headed on. And that path led you to a place where you're following her. And let me tell you the results of that. She's led you to a place like an ox to the slaughter, like a deer being pierced by an arrow or a bird being caught into a snare. In other words, when you followed this path, here's where it led you. Not desire, not pleasure. It wrecked your life. Because you just saw it as a series of events and ignored that it was actually a path that you were headed down. See, this guy saw events. Solomon saw a path. And unfortunately, I feel like for many of us, this is the journey that many of us are on. Listen, here's how Solomon ends the passage. He leads them and he pleads with them. Look how he ends it in verse 24. It's the second plea of the passage. He says, and now, O sons, meaning he's not addressing the one guy anymore. He's talking to anybody that's going to listen. He says, and, uh, he says this, and now, O sons, listen to me. Be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her path. For many victims has she laid low, and her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way of hell, or Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. He says, listen to me. Don't do what she wants you to do. Don't treat these as events. It's a path you're headed down. Get your eyes open. Don't follow into it. Don't let her lure you and seduce you and lead you astray. 
Now, why would these be pertinent words for us? Because isn't that the same tactic the enemy uses with us? Come on, isn't that the same tactic? He entices us, pursues us, invites us, and tries to persuade us. And yet we look at those as separate events in our lives instead of looking at them as a path that we're on. And here's the thing. Many of us are on that journey, but if we want to keep from wrecking our lives, if we want to keep from wrecking them, we have to realize that our life is not a series of standalone events. Please hear me on this. When you look back and you look at different moments in your life, those were not standalone events. Those events were connected. Those events had a ripple effect in your life. They impacted something else. They weren't, your life is not a series of standalone events. Your life is a picture of a path that you're headed on and a path that you're going down. And I want to illustrate to you maybe three areas. There's three areas, and we, we all maybe wrestle with these, or maybe a couple of these areas. And I want to give you some examples, some real-life application of how many of us, how we treat certain things in our life, and how we treat them as maybe an independent, standalone event. For example, let's talk about money first. Many people have a philosophy of money that says what? Says what? Just do it, right? That's the Nike slogan, right? Just do it. Hey, you know, I mean, I know for my boys, my older two boys, that when they first got their full-time jobs and they saw that there was actually money in the bank account, there was that real temptation to go, hey, I got it. I might as well what? Spend it, right? I got it. If I want it, I'm just going to do it. And some people view life that way and view their money that way. Other people, it's like, you know what? Hey, let's get some credit card debt going on. And this is, this is the truth. There's probably not a week that's gone by since we moved here two years ago that my oldest son, James, has not gotten a, a, a thing in the mail at our house where he's never lived asking him if he wants to take out a credit card. I said, son, I could make your life terrible if I'd taken all those credit cards and left you with a lot of debt. Because every week I'm getting cards. Does James want a card? Does James want a card? Does James want a card? And there's many people that say, you know what? I don't have enough money to buy what I want, so guess what I'll do? I'll just... Charge it. I'll never forget one time David was little, and we were probably in like a Toys R Us store. And David said, Daddy, I want that. And I said, son, I don't have any money on me because I didn't have any cash. And he literally looked me in the eye and he goes, Daddy, just charge it. Like, hey, that's the endless supply of money that's out there. Just charge it. And oh, by the way, in case you didn't know, credit card debt's number the one and two reason of bankruptcy in America today. But many people are like, hey, either just do it, or maybe they're like, hey, credit card debt, that's not a big deal. And then for some people, when they view their money, say, hey, listen, let's just skip the tithe. Guess what? I worked hard for this money. It is my money. They view money as that they are owners of that money. Now, here's the thing about this. Many of us would look at this and go, well, these are just three standalone events. Some people think this, some people think that, and some people think this. And I would submit to you that these are not three standalone ideas. This is a path people head down. It starts with going, I got money, I can spend it. And when you run out of money, you still have needs, you still have desires, you still have wants. And so guess what I'm going to do? I'm just going to charge it, and I'm going to get in debt. And guess what? Because I don't have enough money to pay for this, I'll just make the minimum payment. It doesn't matter that it's 72% interest every month, and I can make my $7 minimum payment, and I'm going to pay it to the year of 2099. It doesn't matter that. I'm just going to charge it. And guess who's going to get shafted because of all these other decisions? God is. 
See, when I look at this, I don't see three standalone ideas or events. I see a path that many people have headed down. What about marriage? Some people view marriage and go, you know what? I don't need God's plan. God's plan for wives to submit to their husbands and husbands to be the head of the household. You listen, and if you look at the if you look at Ephesians, what you find out is this is that Paul tells the men, he says, You are to love your wife as Christ loved the church. And we look at that and go, you know what? I, I, I don't have to do that. My mom and dad were married for like 50 years and they weren't Christians. And it seemed to work out for them. I don't need God's plan. Some people approach marriage that way. Some people, when you look at marriage, go, you know what? I worked hard to win them over. I worked hard. And now that we've said I do, now that we're married, whew, I'm going to quit investing in this thing. I mean, this has cost me money. It's cost me time. I have no more creative juices in my brain at all. So now that I've got them, now that they got the ring on the finger, I'm going to just stop this. And then some people, when they look at marriage, some people have no value, and it leads to an emotional or physical affair. They have no value in the, uh, in the vows that they've taken. Now, I would say to you in marriage, are these three standalone events? And I would say, they're not. Because here's what I know. People who ignore God's plan for marriage will eventually not want to nurture their wives' husbands as they should, and they'll quit investing in that marriage, and eventually they'll get bored with their spouse, and they will start looking elsewhere, and their eyes and their hearts and their emotion will be drawn to somebody else, and this is where it ends. So you can look at this and say, well, this is where I'm at, Doug, but that's never going to happen. And I would say, no, this is the beginning place of a path that you are headed on. One last thing I want you to look at is maybe our testimonies. Some people, when it comes to our lives, we just choose to live recklessly. It's that idea that if I have a right to do it, I'm going to do it. Forget my responsibilities. I have a right so I'm going to do it. So I'm going to live however I want to live, the way I want to live, and I don't care how this thing ripples out. It makes me no difference. And some people just look at life and look at their testimony, and they live recklessly. And when it really gets sad is when they're Christians that live like this. But not only live recklessly, some people look at life, and it's all one big compromise. I say I believe this. I say I think this. But if you persuade me long enough or hard enough, I'm probably going to give in. And then other people look at life like this. I've got all the wrong influences. I've hung around the wrong people for so long that I don't even know the right people to hang around. Now, you may look at this and go, Doug, that's three separate events. And what I would say to you is, no, it's not. It's a path you're headed on. That it starts here. When you live life recklessly, eventually that will end up and lead to compromise of your faith and your convictions. Will eventually lead to you letting the wrong people having a voice in your life. Well, Doug, what is the point of this? Here's the point, and please don't miss it. Stop viewing our lives as single standalone events and realize that these events represent a path that we are on. And here's the question I want you to answer. Are you happy with the path that you're on? Think about it. Are you happy with the path you're on? When you look at the path that you're on, are you okay with that? When it comes to your finances, are you okay with the path that you're on? When it comes to your relationships, your marriage, or your friendships, or your dating, are you okay? Are you happy with where you're at? When it comes to your testimony, and your life, are you okay with where those things are at? Are you happy with the path that you're on and the path you're headed down? Because here's what I want you to know, and I don't want you to miss this. 
wherever you find yourself in your marriage or your relationships, wherever you find yourself in your finances, wherever you find yourself with your testimony is a direct result of decisions you made. Nobody else. So where you're at spiritually at this moment is a direct result of the decisions that you made, not me. The place that I find myself spiritually right now is a direct reflection of decisions Doug made, not anybody else. So here's the thing. If we don't like the path we're going down, guess what we need to do? Change the direction. Why? Because direction determines destination. And I want to say this to you. You can't do it on your own. You need the power of the Holy Spirit to say, Lord, my finances, and they are a mess. I've been skipping this because i got too much of this going on. And you say, Doug, I don't know how to, I don't know how to start with my finances. Well, let me give you some tips. You ready? First of all, stop overspending. If you make 1000 a month, don't spend 2000 Have a budget. Make a plan. Get out of debt. Quit crying, trying to accrue debt and get out of debt. Have a plan. Well, Doug, you don't understand. It is just so big. Well, call Dave Ramsey. He'll let you, he'll let you know how to get out of it. And then the tithe. Start giving to God what belongs to God. Well, Doug, you don't understand. I don't have the money. Listen, you can't afford not to give to God. Because when he opens up heaven, what he's going to bless you with will blow your socks off. So if you're struggling with your finances, start here. If you're struggling with your marriage, quit ignoring God's plan and start putting it into your life. Don't, don't, don't stop investing in your spouse. Pick up your game. Invest more in your spouse. It's worth it. And when it comes to this, make sure you have boundaries. You have guardrails. You make sure that when you interact with someone of the opposite sex, you protect your eyes and your heart and your mind. And then maybe you're struggling with your life. Listen, make sure you elevate your responsibilities over your rights every time. Compromise. Stop giving in. If the Bible says don't, don't. And the wrong friends, the wrong influencers, get those people out of your life. If you don't like where you're at in life and in certain areas, here's what you do. Change the direction. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you the power to change that direction in your life. Now, here's what I know about most people that are watching and most people that are here, especially those of us that are believers. We would all agree and say this, the most important moment in our life was the moment we said yes to Christ. Amen? You believe that? That moment that I surrendered and said, Lord Jesus, I'm going to live the rest of my life for you. But the struggle becomes this. Somewhere along the way, maybe a teenager, maybe a young adult, maybe even right now, we kind of lost our way. We kind of followed the path of the foolish, not the path of the wise. And tonight we need to realize, in this moment, we need to realize that those events in our life aren't just events. It's a reflection of the path that we've been going down. And if we don't like it, we need to ask him to help us to change it. And then for some that are here, maybe some that are watching, maybe you don't have a personal relationship with Christ. Let me tell you the direction, the path you're headed down. You're headed down a path of eternal separation from a king. You're headed down a path that's going to lead you to an eternal punishment where you will miss out on the love, the blessing, and the nurturing of Jesus himself. And you will spend an eternity apart from him. And if you don't like that direction in your life, it's as simple as repenting and turning from your sin and inviting Jesus to be the Lord and the Savior of your life. And so no matter who you are, believer or non-believer, if you don't like where you're headed, ask the Holy Spirit to change the direction, the course of your life. And then may we be faithful to respond. Let's all stand together as we pray. Let's all stand together. Father, I love you. I thank you for this moment.
I thank you for this passage, Lord. Every time I walk through it, it convicts me. It reminds me that every decision that I make in life is connected. It has a ripple effect. That every decision that I make in life is a picture of the path that I'm headed down spiritually, financially, maritally, relationally, vocationally. It's, it's, it's a reflection of where I'm headed. And Lord, for many of us, as we think about that, we don't like where we're going. We don't like the path we're going down. But God, instead of us waving the white flag and just giving in and continuing going that path, it's going to take us faster than we want to go and take us farther than we want to go. Man, we pause tonight and say, Lord, I need a change. I need to change a course of my life. I need my marriage to change the course of its direction. I need my finances to change the course of our direction. But Lord, I can't do it on my own. I need you. Lord, would you help me change the direction of my life? And then Lord, for those that don't know you, may they truly understand the weight of the path that they're on. A path of eternal separation and punishment. A path that when they leave this world has no second chances. But if they don't like that path, Lord, there's another path. It's a path that leads to life, eternal life. And so God, I pray for those that it may be in this very moment, they might just admit that they're a sinner, that they would confess that, that we believe that Jesus is Lord and confess him as the Lord and Savior of their life. Lord, if they do that, you will not only change their path, you will change their eternity. So God, be with us in this moment. May we as believers and those who maybe don't know you, in this moment, may we be faithful to respond to you. For it's in your precious and your holy son's name we pray. Everybody said amen. Amen.